Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Titus, one of the most famous books in the Bible, right? All right. Some of you are like, oh, table of contents time, Titus. All right. Here's what I tell you. Titus is with all the T's in the New Testament. If you find a T, it's right around there. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the T's in the New Testament are all together. So if you have a Bible and you know kind of where to look, go to the towards the end. And there's first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, Titus. They're in alphabetical order when you get to the back there. All right. Wasn't it nice of God to do that for us? Um, and so we're going to talk about the book of Titus. And, and here's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We're going to talk about Titus and I'll explain the kinetic faith in a, a few minutes and talk about that. But we're going to talk about this book of the Bible that God gave us that was written to a pastor. Really more than that, it's the only book in the entire Bible written to a church planner. And so this is a guy, Titus who is planting a church. He is working a ground where there is not a church. And Paul is writing him to say, here are some ideas for you. Here's what I want you to know. Now, here's why it was important. Titus was perhaps planting a church in the most difficult place to plant a church in that area. Okay. Titus was planting a church on an island. I actually have a map of it. I know how you love Bible maps. This is a, a picture of it. Uh, he was planting a church on Crete, right? Now, if you know your geography, I know a lot of you know exactly where all this is, but this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Asia over here. There's uh, Greece, and you see the boot of Italy. Rome is here. If just from your Bible stuff, Ephesians and Colossians and all that was written to this area. Um, Antioch, all that. And so right in the middle is this island called Crete. Now, Crete was considered one of, if not the most immoral places in all of the ancient world. Anything went in Crete. It was right in the middle of the sea. And so not only was it kind of the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean world, there was this unique thing about Crete as well, that it was the home of piracy in the Mediterranean world. Now think about this, all right? You're planning a church. In the place that is like Las Vegas, but it's got pirates running around everywhere. Okay? It's kind of like planting a church among these guys. Right here, right? Like, can you imagine? Now, some of you are like, that'd be the coolest thing ever. I'd plant a church with the pirates of the Caribbean. No, it would not be cool, right? What do pirates do? They steal and kill and plunder, right? And this was like, uh, Crete was this place that was completely immoral, had pirates running everywhere, and stuff was just not, it was just not a good place to be. Now, here's some more things about Crete that you need to know. Um, people in Crete, these are what historians write about this place. People in Crete stayed drunk all the time. They valued lying. They thought that was a good thing. In fact, in the ancient world, in Greek, Crete means it was slang for lying. And so if you creted, sounds bad, like stop creting, they would say that. You quit creting, it meant quit lying, tell the truth. And so imagine if you lived in a place that was known for lying. One historian said that nowhere in the ancient world were politicians more corrupt than Crete. Here's what Paul said about it. And this is in Titus. You can look down a little bit. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but he says this down in verse 12 of chapter one. Even one of their own prophets, that's Paul said to Titus, even one of their own prophets, even one of the Cretans said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, and that's absolutely true. I mean, it's what it is. 
liars, gluttons, evil brutes, lazy. Some of you are like, quit talking about my friends, right? Quit describing my family, all right? So here's the thing. Titus is trying to plant a church in the midst of this complete immorality. And he's asking Paul, what should I do? How should it look? And the thing that I think is important for us is this book becomes extremely relevant because the question that is on their mind, the question that everybody is kind of wondering at this moment is, how do you live out your faith in a really difficult place? In an immoral place like Crete, in a place where Christianity is not only not thought of much, it's despised and belittled, where people find it irrelevant and even a little strange. And Paul writes that answer to his church planting member, Titus. He has one concern for the whole book, and we see it in chapter one, verse one. We're going to be in chapter one and a little bit of chapter two. And so most of it will be on the screen. If you've got your Bibles open or you've got it up on your phones, you'll be able to follow along. But in Titus chapter one, verse one, Paul says this. Titus one, one says, Paul, as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect. So he's saying, I'm writing this letter to Titus to help build up the faith of those that have chosen to follow Christ. Those that God has purchased. Those that have been adopted into God's family. And this is the reason he wrote it. That their knowledge would grow of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul says this. The way you live out your faith in a culture that despises or doesn't like or ridicules you is first of all, you make sure that it comes from a truth that is real and that that truth leads to godliness. We're going to talk about what that means over the next three weeks, but here's the essence of the whole thing. He says, if you're going to live out your faith, make sure it's real. And it's the kind of faith that allows you, that flows out of you to live in a way that shows who Christ is. There we go. How many of you have seen this movie? You might know what this movie is. It's the new Exodus movie, all right? Who's this guy? Anybody know this guy? Christian Bale, right? I've already had Christian Bale and Johnny Depp up on the screen today, all right? Christian Bale is uh, played movie. How many of you have seen Exodus, the new Gods and Kings? Exodus? Paul, good. You and I will have a conversation for a minute, Paul, all right? So in the movie, here's the thing, okay? It's not, a, it's not a bad movie if you don't care about the Bible. It's a good movie if you don't really... I mean, it's not, I don't, the director wasn't trying to make a biblically accurate thing. And so if you just go into it knowing that, it's okay. And so it turns Moses into like a gladiator figure, okay? And so like he's fighting and all that kind of stuff. In fact, in the movie, um, Moses does hand-to-hand combat with Pharaoh in the middle of the parted Red Sea. And I don't... If you saw the movie, that doesn't, so Paul, that doesn't happen in like the Bible, all right? And so there are parts of it that aren't really there. But the biggest part of it, which already been given away because you've seen the words, but the biggest part of it is he doesn't utter the most famous line that Moses has in all of Exodus, right? Like even the movies that don't try to be biblically accurate all the way get this line in there because there's that dramatic moment. If you grew up like I did watching the Ten Commandments on Easter, um, and Charlton Heston, right? When you watched him, he goes into Pharaoh and he looks at Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. They don't do that in the new one. Like, how do you not do that? Right? Like, that's dramatic. That's that moment. But here's the thing that's interesting. Okay. We're going to reel this all back in now. 
the thing that makes this interesting is even the ones that are trying to be really faithful to Scripture don't include the second part of what Moses says. Because Moses just doesn't go to Pharaoh in the Exodus account and say, let my people go. That's important. Salvation's important. He says this, let my people go that they might worship me. And the point here is not, I just want them out of Egypt. The point is, I've got a plan for them now. And sometimes as Christians, we spend a whole lot of time talking about what God has saved us from. And we don't really think about what God has saved us to. And what happens here is we like that. Let my people go. He's rescued us out. He has saved us. He has made us his people. But we forget that he's given us two. In a few weeks, we're going to do a new series. We're going to talk about how God kind of forms us. But it comes it has been based out of the Ephesians chapter two, where he says that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are God's masterpiece created in him before time began to do good works. We, we love that we have been saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's not of us. Praise be to God. But we sometimes miss the what we've been saved to. And here's what Paul says to Titus. I want you to instruct people on the faith that changes who they are. Changes how they live and leads them to live lives that show forth the glory of God. So that's what the whole book is about. We're going to look at a couple of things this morning that help us to understand it. Because the problem is we as a people would rather sometimes have a solution about how to change our lives other than just simply through grace and simply through God working in and of our lives. And what we are, our goal is, what our desire is, what we want to happen is that God so radically transforms who we are inside that it shows itself in the way it works out. And that's why we've called this series Kinetic Faith. Have you got that graphic to put back up, the Kinetic Faith? All right, so I'm going to ask some of you to go back to school for a minute, think about physical science, kinetic energy, or like kinesiology, the study of how things happen in the human body. What does the word kinetic mean? Motion, right? It's of or pertaining to motion. Faith. What does faith mean? It's that thing that we have placed our life upon. We have put our life on. And what the idea is for us is we want a faith. We want a belief. We want an understanding of God's grace and mercy that is so vibrant in us that it creates change and momentum in our life that we impact the culture around us. We want kinetic faith, moving faith for our deeply held belief to send us into motion. Unfortunately, most of us look for that in a way that is not what God intended. We would rather do external change instead of being changed on the inside. And see, sometimes we think when we hear this, even kinetic faith, what I want to make sure you understand is I'm not talking about just being busy. Listen, most of you got that down like you're good with that. Like if it's just being busy that shows whether or not you're a believer in Jesus Christ, like there'd be a whole lot of believers around this area. It's not about being busy. In fact, if you're exhausted all the time, you're probably doing more than God intends for you to do. The Christian life is not a life of exhaustion because of busyness. It's a life of transformation that gives us purpose in our moment. 
And the idea is that sometimes we have a problem trying to implement religion in there to change us. And religion will never do that. Religion will never change us to be the people God intends for us to be because it doesn't have the power to do it. Look at if you've got your Bibles open, look down at Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. This should be on the screen too, all right? And Paul's talking about the people that are around. Paul would preach in a place, he would plant a church, he would move on, and then there would be these group of people that walk in behind him. We talked about them a lot because we talk about Paul's letters a lot. These people called the Judaizers or the circumcision group, you can see that highlighted here. And they would go in and tell people that Paul had preached a good message, but he hadn't given them the whole thing. They were kind of the... Uh, um, bait and switch guys. You know what those are? Like the guys that will say to you, hey, listen, i got a great deal for you. i got a new car for you. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be $2,000. And you're like, hey, man, that's great. And then he says, all right, got to get the other guy to come in and close the deal. And the other guy comes in and goes, it's $2,000 plus $3,000 for a cleanup fee and $4,000 for taxes. And so it's going to nearly be $12,000. Right? One guy sells you another. They came in and said, Paul kind of gave you the simple answer. We want to tell you there's more. And they would tack religion onto what Paul was doing. And Paul says, it's ridiculous. Look what he says. For there are many rebellious people. He he comes right out of the gate, not calling them anything but rebellious. Full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, the reason they're called the circumcision group is, real quickly, to become a Jewish male. If you were not a Jewish male, what did you have to have done? Circumcision, right? Okay, That's that's a big deal. That's a big deal. All right. If you're a guy, that's a big deal. And so they were saying, like, if you want to be a Jew, this is what has to happen. And you have to follow all the laws. And I love Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He states it exactly how he goes. They must be silenced. They're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake, they're just doing it for their own gain. They're just trying to get money. They're just trying to use God for their own gains. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. So that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. And then he says. They claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Don't you wish Paul would tell us what he really thought about these people, right? Now, can you imagine if I said, hey, listen, we're going to take a moment here in the worship service today. And instead of recognizing for good service, I, I just need to do a little something else. And so I called 15 people out and I pulled them up to the front and I said, I need you to turn and face the congregation. And I said to you as a congregation, I just want you to know these people right here, they are detestable. They are disobedient and they are unfit for doing anything good. They must be rebuked harshly and thrown out of the church. Good day. How are y'all? Now, how would y'all react to that? I'd be, whoa, that's what Paul says. And he says it because they are trying to teach that somehow external change is the way to earn favor with God. He says they have meaningless words, they have words that don't make any sense. They have these words that try to tell us these things, but they are not the truth. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit. And here's the reason that Paul tells us this. It's two reasons. It's because there's this sense out there that religion can save you and it can't. The first reason is, is because religion emphasizes obeying rules rather than internal transformation. He says in verse 10, it's mere words. He says in verse 13, it's Jewish rituals or commands. And here's the second reason. Religion uses God. He says they do it for dishonest gain. For them, it's a means to an end. I'm trying to attain something from God. I'm trying to negotiate with God. I'm trying to do good enough that God will 
like me. And here's the problem with that. When you start to do that, you get caught in a cycle of having to do things without a motivation or reason to do them. Maybe some of you grew up in a church or a home where you were told to do things just to do them because that's the way we do them. Not with an understanding of why those rules are in place. Let me ask you a question. If you grew up in a home or you know, let's do this. If you knew somebody that grew up in a home that way, because some of you may be sitting near parents, all right? If you grew up in a home or you know somebody that grew up in a home that had rules, rules, rules without any reason behind the rules, what generally happened when they got out of the house? They went nuts, right? Crazy, rebellious, because there's no reason for the rules. And religion is just the parent that has strict rules without an understanding of why. Listen to this. Instead of gratefulness, religion produces pride. Think about this. When people think they're really good at religious stuff, doing church stuff, they're really good at being good people. They talk about it like, man, I, I can't. I mean, I know everybody has their own things, but man, I, I'm doing some stuff nobody else would do or um, nobody. Nobody else wants to do it, so I guess I'll I'll be the one to step up and really take the initiative and do it there. I, I, I don't know where they've been lately. They haven't been at church lately, and something must be going on with them because I would never miss church that much. Or I would I heard what they said the other day, and I would never use language like that. I mean, if you want to if, if you want to do that, that, that's fine. But I just don't know that believers in Jesus really should be acting that way. It's all about how they're doing. Or if you fail to live up to the standards, you don't have pride. You just have despair. I'm never going to live up to that. I'm never going to be good enough. I'll never be like her. Man, I got too much stuff in my past. I'll never be able to say things like she. I don't, I don't know the Bible very well. There's no way I'll ever learn it to be able to talk about it like she does. Religion causes pride. Instead of full surrender, religion calls for only partial commitment. Hey, just just give us a week. Give us, give us an hour a week. Um, you come and you do your little part. You sing your songs and you pray your prayers and you say the right words. And then you don't do certain things through the rest of the week. There's some gray areas, but certain things you don't do for sure. And everything will be OK. You, you don't have to give full commitment. Just just partial, just a little bit. Religion. Causes us to worship things and use God instead of worshiping God and using things. We get to the point where we're trying to use God to get something that we really want or feel like we need. Religion has us negotiating with sin. You ask, how much can I do? How close to the line can I get and not still be punished? How far can I go without stepping over into the really bad sin area? And you start negotiating with sin. Listen, uh, there was a pastor one time that said this, said that if you are a person that loves God, you must hate sin. You can't worry about how close can I get to it? How close can I get to touching it? Can I just get to the edge of the line and see if it's there? If you ever have kids that you said, hey, listen, do not go past this line and they get as far up as close to the line as they can get. Nobody else may have had that, right? Maybe you know kids. You have teenagers or seen teenagers, worked with them, and you're like, hey, 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 um, I need you to clean your room, and I will check on it in 30 minutes, and you hear no activity for the first 28 and a half minutes. 
Right. Like, how close can I get to it? Can I tell you that as a Christian, our response to sin shouldn't be how close can we get to the line? We should hate sin. Now, let me give you an example. All right. My wife, Susan Larson, great lady, wonderful woman of God, hates spiders. Anybody else out there hate spiders? Anybody hate? Okay, listen, she hates spiders. She does not ask, how close do I get to the spider before it harms me? Right? Right? Now, Eli's at the point where Eli likes to play practical jokes on people sometimes. He likes to kind of get people. And we were riding in the car one day, and uh, apparently there was a rather large spider. You remember this, Eli? Crawling on the window out by Susan's passenger side window. Now, it was on the outside of the window, but it was one of those things that when you first see it, it takes you a minute to realize if it's inside or outside. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so Eli is the first in the car to see it and says, hey, mom, (laughs) there's a spider on your window. You're like, immediate. And it's not like, oh, let me let me investigate. Let me rub my hand to see if it's inside or outside. Like it is like get away, right? Now, just so you spider people don't feel bad, okay? I, spiders, I don't have a thing with spiders, but I hate snakes. Like, if I see one, uh, somebody else going to kill it because I'm not going to be around it, right? I mean, Susan called me one time. We were living in Ripley, and I was visiting in the hospital in Memphis, and she said, Lyle, there's a snake on the back porch. I said, who can you call to get it away before I get there? Like, let's no, don't be waiting on me for that, all right? Like, it's not... That's not my thing. Uh, in fact, I told this story in the first service. I think it was in the first year or two I was here. Um, I was doing a funeral for somebody that uh, was being buried up in Springfield on the country. And um, <laughs> they only had like two or three um, um, pallbearers that were able to carry the casket. It was an older man. And so they're carrying the casket. And I don't know if you've been to a funeral lately. Um, I have. I go to a few and as you get in the as you're getting out at the cemetery, the pastor walks in front of the casket as it's being carried. This particular day, like two or three people carrying it, plus the workers that are there that are helping to dig the grave or helping them carry. And as I'm walking towards the gravesite, I just glance down and a snake slithers past my foot. That's fun. And as I just kind of I do the nonchalant thing, like I'm looking to see how the those guys are doing in the back. How are y'all? And as I look, that snake crawls right under the casket. And I don't say a word because you know why? If I'd have said, oh, by the way, guys, there's a snake crawling right there. What are they going to do? They're going to drop the casket. I don't want to do that. But it's like that's as close as I ever want to be to a snake. Like, I, I don't think how close can I get? Because I hate them. Now, some of you are like, I like to hold them. You're a you're the enemy. All right. That's not it's not natural. Right. If you like if you're one of those people like to wrap them around your neck, like something wrong with you. All right. Uh, So sin is worse than a snake or a spider. When you've been transformed by God, you don't think, man, I just want to get close. And religion kind of sets rules about you can go here and here and here and go right up to the line. Just don't cross over it. People that love God. Don't have that to be any part of their lives. Richard Sibbs says this. After being transformed by the gospel, the sin itself becomes more loathsome to you than the punishment. Religion keeps us busy. It's got rituals. It's got commands. It's got words. But religion never stops sin. And Paul's going to let them know. He's going to tell Titus this. 
You can't impact the world around you if you've got a superficial religion that doesn't confront the necessity of God in our hearts. So how does, how does that change us? Look over in chapter 2. I'm going to be in chapter 2 and then we're going to be done. We're going to do this quickly. Three things we're going to see here. Chapter 2, starting in verse 11, says this. I think we got it there. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It. Now, here's one of the most important things in all of this scripture. That word it, it when we determine what it means, what it is, to, to use the, the grammatical term, when we figure out the antecedent of it, it makes a huge difference in our understanding of this passage. Because it says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. And so if I just ask the world, if I just ask people, what is it? What teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives? Some people would say, well, it's just greater willpower. It's just stronger will. Just saying I'm not going to do it. Some people would say it's just more knowledge. If you just knew more, everything would be okay. Some would say it's accountability partners. That if you have enough accountability partners asking you the right question, you won't go into ungodliness and worldly passions. Some say it's quiet time. That if you just if you have a quiet time every morning, that's what's going to lead you into ungodliness. But that's not what Paul says. What does Paul say teaches us to say no to ungodliness? The grace of God. Paul's answer is the grace of God. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to passions, and to live self-control. And here's the reason. And there are three directions that the grace of God causes us to look. And we're going to see this through the rest of the passage. It causes us to look, and we'll go through these one at a time in a minute, but it causes us to look upward to change how we worship. It causes us to look backward to give us how we are thankful for what God has done. And then it causes us to go forward to look to the direction that God has us. So it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright and godly lives in this present age. Then he says this, while we wait, patiently, actively wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And this is the key part, eager to do what is good. What he says here is this. We don't get transformed by some outward show of religion. Our lives are transformed by an inner understanding of the grace and the mercy of God. It makes us look upward. It redirects our worship. Sin problems in our lives are generally, if not always, worship problems. Paul says in Romans 1.23, and you don't have to, to go there, you can just listen. He says, we gave the glory of God to created things. The one thing that we have done, the major thing we have done is we have given the glory that God deserves and we have given it to created things. In Hebrew, the word glory means weight. It means honor. It means, it means reputation. It means that we have given to other things. God created things. We have given them the weight that only God deserves. In the New Testament, glory means beauty. And so it's like we've given the beauty of other things that God deserves. Listen, yesterday was a conflicting day for me. Um, um, I uh, have this conflicted relationship now with college football. Okay? And it's not just because Tennessee has not been good for a while and may be good soon or in the future. Okay? 
Here's my conflicted thing with college football. When I grew up, um, even before college football was kind of the thing to be cool for everybody to be all in on, gun crazy, we were crazy about college football in my house. I mean, we used to have people, this, you know, before, before college game day was big college game day, we'd have people at my house at 10 o'clock in the morning watching college game day. On My dad bought a big screen projection TV so we could watch football on it. Right. My, my dad, who worked in a factory and my mom, who worked in a factory, spent good, hard earned money on a big TV before those were really cheap. All right. Because we had friends come over. We had a blanket that you put out in our floor that was a Tennessee blanket. And when Tennessee was playing, no one touched the blanket. If someone touched the blanket, Tennessee lost. So no one touched the blanket. We, everybody brought food. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. We had, we'd have 30 people in my two and a half bedroom house to watch a game. I loved it. I still do. I mean, I still yesterday watching the game, getting mad and excited and upset. And I mean, nothing else in my life really. Cardinals baseball sometimes, but sports in general gets me where I'm sitting on the couch watching something. I'm like, woo! Look at that. And I'm looking around like, oh, does anybody see that? That was, Crazy, right? Not, like, I jump up out of my couch. But here's my, here's my problem with it. In my own life, I have the tendency, and I know people have this tendency, to give the beauty and the importance that all be given to God to something as silly as a football game. And I know that. That's mine. I got others. That's not the only one. I sometimes give my kids the importance and the beauty that is due only to God, but I make them my idols. I love my wife dearly, but there are times that I place her needs and her understanding and her even above my God, and that's wrong. And what happens when we understand the grace of God in our lives? It shows us that the only name that we can run to, that we can worship, that is worth our worth, our glory, and our importance, and our beauty is Jesus Christ alone. Matt Papa, who's a worship leader, says that sin is simply worship misdirected. We never begin to worship. We are born worshipers. Like breathing. We just aim our worship somewhere, and sin is when we aim it in the wrong direction. And to change sin at the heart level, we have to understand that God is the one and the only one worth our worship. Verse 13 tells us that the gospel and the gospel alone does that. It redirects and reignites our worship because it shows us a God who is more glorious and better than our idols. And it kindles within us a love of him because of what he has done. Now, here's what I've discovered in my life. And this is something that Charles Spurgeon talked about a long time ago. All right. A long time ago. That, that the things in my life that I love, nobody has to tell me to love them. Like, like the things in my life that I love, nobody has to command me to love them. I love steak. Nobody has to command me to love steak. Get over there and eat your steak. Right? Nobody has to command. I love steak. Man, there, is, there are very few things in life that I get the enjoyment out of. A steak that is improperly cooked, seasoned well, and you put it in your mouth and you bite it. And you shouldn't be talking about this at 11.50, I know. But, like, uh, there's nothing. I, I love steak. You don't have to tell me, hey, go love steak. I, I love to kiss my wife. You don't have to tell me to love that. Because I love her. You don't have to say, well, you really got to go over there and do that. It's a command. Like, it's something I want to do. I love to do that. 
nobody has to command me to take a nap. Amen. Man, I love naps. I mean, what is better than in the middle of the day stealing sleep, right? Like a little bit, like I'm just going to take a 20 minute nap. You know, I think about I think about the difference between me and my kids. Like I have to tell my kids, go take a nap. You're I'm not tired. Go take a nap. Like get in there and take a nap. Nobody would ever have to say that to me. Like if somebody said, hey, if you wanted to, now would be a good time to take a I'm out, right? Like take a nap. I love it. On the other hand, if I don't love something, no command is going to make me love it. Listen, I don't care how many times you tell me to eat Brussels sprouts. I am not going to love it. Now, if you're a Brussels sprout fan, too bad. I am not like I'm not I don't like that. All right. And I'm not going to no matter how many times you tell me eat your Brussels sprouts. I'm not going to love it. No command can make me love something. And he says this. Martin Luther says the dilemma we have is if you don't love God, you can't be forced into doing it. It has to be something that changes at your heart level because of what he's done. It makes us look upward to worship him. It makes us look backward to see what he has done for us and to be grateful. When we are grateful to the Lord, we realize that we could not do this on our own. That it is only because of his love that we have any chance or any hope. We are thankless to God. We rob God of the glory belonging to him. And we delude ourselves into thinking that we're self-sufficient. We look backward and see how good he has been to us. And then the last thing is we look forward to the promise that he has that he's coming to get us again. In the gospel, we see what God is making us in the future he has for us. He puts in a taste, a hunger for the future. When I think about John in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, John gets this picture of what heaven's going to be like. And it is something he can't even imagine or think about. It is something he can't even comprehend. He tries to describe it to us. And for the last 2000 years, we've been trying to figure out what in the world is John talking about? Like, I don't understand. That's because John didn't understand it. He just knew it was unbelievable. And I love this because John sees this whole thing. And there's some pretty horrific stuff in the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've read it lately, but there's like some pretty weird stuff in the book of Revelation. And I love that at the end of the book of Revelation. Anybody know what the last words of the Bible are? Like You could, you know, cheat and look. But anybody know what the words, the last words John writes? He sees all this crazy stuff, all this weird stuff. He sees killing. He sees all this stuff. And he gets to the very end and he says... Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. John says, listen, I don't know all of what it's going to mean, but I can't wait because of what the gospel and Christ has done in my heart to experience life without sin. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to experience friendships and relationships and worship Without sin. Two questions before you go and then we're done. Because the whole point that Paul makes to Titus is this. That if you haven't been changed inwardly, if Christ hasn't changed your heart, no amount of religion is going to do it. And it doesn't matter what tradition you grew up in. Every tradition kind of has their ability to tell you what you should and should not do. And Paul says none of that matters. If you haven't been changed on the inside. So here's the, the two questions to ask you real quickly. Who are you listening to? When it comes to... Um, who you are and the way you're living and what's happening in your life. Are you listening to yourself? Are you listening to your friends? Are you opening the word of God and listening to what it says about you? And then secondly, the question is this. 
is there evidence of transformation? Can I tell you what Paul says in Titus, what Paul says to the rest of the New Testament, what Jesus says? It's simply this. If there's no evidence of transformation in your life, then there's probably no transformation in your life. If there's no evidence that God is transforming you into a person who looks more like what God intends for you to look, not what you intend to look like, not what your friends say, not what your political party says, not what your workplace says, but what the Word of God and Christ says, if you're not transforming into that, if there's no evidence of transformation in your life, you're probably not transformed. What does that mean? It means you're not saved. It means you're lost. It means that you're without Christ. And Scripture says without Christ there is no hope and there is no future. And you are consumed by your own passions that will lead you to an eternity without Him. So my question is, is there evidence of transformation in your life? Let's pray together.